0: 2nd of September, 1945, a man mounted a small wooden stage in Hanoi. In August, just weeks before, bombs had fallen on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Japanese had surrendered, leaving French Indochina in limbo. The Japanese had occupied it first with the consent and collaboration of the Vichy administration, and then overthrown the Vichy entirely when de Gaulle and the Free French seemed to be close to reinstating a unitary government. When the Japanese signaled to the Allied powers that it was seeking an armistice, it suddenly became unclear who or what was in charge of the Vietnamese provinces of French Indochina. Into that vacuum plunged the Vietnam Doc Lap Dong Min Hoi, the League for the Independence of Vietnam, or the Viet Minh. The Viet Minh was a front for the Vietnamese Communist Party, but it was also a broad, genuine coalition of nationalists, capitalists, socialists, and Vietnamese who didn't care what government followed the French, as long as it did follow the French. The Viet Minh's armed forces, led by the former history professor Vo Nguyen Jap, had already been making gains against the Japanese, with the help of American special forces units, before their surrender to the Allies. Those forces, assisted by already extant political cadres, swept into cities in the north, south and center, raising the people against both former occupying powers, and taking Hanoi and the rest of the country by August 25th, just 10 days after the Japanese capitulation. The people of Hanoi had gathered on the 2nd of September in front of the Colonial Palace of Government to hear the first public pronouncement from the new president. The square was packed. Days of protests by the civil service and student unions that had helped to ensure that the new government was Vietnamese rather than French had created this citywide euphoria. As Giap himself later wrote, quote, "'Red flags grew in number and splendor, fluttering in the wind and splashing the houses and streets like a festival for the oppressed," The crowd knew the man on the stage as Nguyen Ai Quoc, Nguyen the Patriot in Vietnamese. They'd been hearing his name for decades in news reports, as a byline in papers and journals, as the representative of the colonized Indochinese at the meetings of socialist congresses. First from Paris in 1919, advocating for the rights of the Versailles negotiations, then from Moscow at the Fifth Congress of the Communist International, telling the world that, quote, the revolt of the colonial peasants is imminent, unquote. He appeared in South China and then in Thailand. He'd been captured and killed by the French Secret Service and then the British before reappearing in Hong Kong. That past August, in Jiap's words, quote, was the first time he had been to Hanoi. It had taken him 35 years to reach the capital from the small thatched house in Kim Lien village where he was born, 300 kilometers to the south. On that day, his new name, the one that he would use until his death, was still unfamiliar to his own people. The president, continued Jap later, now appeared for the first time before his people, a thin old man with a broad forehead, bright eyes and a sparse beard, wearing an old hat, a high-collared khaki jacket and white rubber sandals, He addressed them under a new name, no longer Nguyen the patriot who had fought for decades to reach this moment. Now he was he who enlightens, Ho Chi Minh. And before a crowd of thousands, including Major Archimedes Patti of the American Office of Strategic Services, he declared Vietnamese independence. He said, quote, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This immortal statement was made in the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America in 1776. In a broader sense, this means, all the peoples on the earth are equal from birth, and all the peoples have a right to live, to be happy and free. The Declaration of the French Revolution, made in 1791, on the rights of man and the citizen also states, all men are born free and with equal rights, and must always remain free and have equal rights. Those are undeniable truths. Nevertheless, for more than 80 years, the French imperialists, abusing the standard of liberty, equality, and fraternity, have violated our fatherland and oppressed our fellow citizens. They've acted contrary to the ideals of humanity and justice. Ho went on to enumerate all of the injustices of the French administration before finishing with these words. For these reasons, we, members of the provisional government of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, solemnly declare to the world that Vietnam has the right to be a free and independent country. And in fact, it is so already. The entire Vietnamese people are determined to mobilize all of their physical and mental strength to sacrifice their lives and property in order to safeguard their independence and liberty." For that day, Vietnam was indeed independent. But other forces were already at work, first the French and then the Americans, which would ensure that real independence for the country would have to wait for 10,832 more days. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest,
1: the most influential and most productive nation in the world.
0: ¿Para qué sirve
1: entonces
0: la civilización? Para que sirve la conciencia del hombre? Para que sirven las Naciones Unidas?
1: But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war.
2: We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression.
1: Across the world, we're hunting down the killers
2: and we're showing them the definition of American justice.
1: There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States
2: has no intention of determining the precise form Iraq's new government, that choice belongs to the Iraqi people.
1: Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow.
0: Well, here it is, folks. The very beginning of what I think will be, must be, the very last thing that we do together. Like I said in the preview show, it's not really what I'd envisioned as the third series on SFD. While we've been together for a very long time in real years and in length of recorded audio, we've only covered the very beginning of the U.S.'s misuse of its position as a newly minted world power after World War II. And I'd hope to get through just about every other instance before I moved on to Vietnam. But life and time got away from me, and I've never been able to work quite as fast in fact as I imagined myself beforehand in my head. So here we are. The thing that made me want to hold Vietnam in reserve as the piece de resistance or the coup de grace of SFD is the same thing that makes me not too unhappy to get to it early, right now. The US first got involved in Vietnamese politics when Vietnam was still a colony as it first got involved in Iran, when that country was effectively a colony of the British. We, under FDR, showed our quality in opposing French ambitions of Vietnamese reconquest, and we, as we would almost simultaneously do in Iran, forgot the better angels of our nature as we grew more comfortable as the bastion of Western democracy and capitalism, and we allowed ourselves to view Vietnam and the Vietnamese as pawns in the great game that we played with the Soviets. Our changing involvement in what we first knew as Indochina and then as the divided country of Vietnam reflected our changing politics, both national and international, and I think I'll be able to make the case by the end of this series, if we get there, that our defeat at the hands of the North Vietnamese mirrored the defeat of that which was best in our own country, sacrificed in the pursuit of victory in the twin deltas of the Indochinese peninsula. In other words, Vietnam might be all we have left here at SFD, but I might well manage to make Vietnam cover most of the rest of it. A word here before we start. I'm going to be making a good-faith effort to learn how to pronounce Vietnamese as transliterated into Romanized characters. As of writing, I haven't yet done that, so I can't tell you exactly where that will come into play. One of the only revelations that came out of Ken Burns's recent documentary series, though, is that Ds in Vietnamese sometimes come out as Zs, so that the American-sponsored autocrat who ran South Vietnam from the mid-50s into the early 60s, Ngo Dinh Diem, his name is actually pronounced Ngo Dinh Diem. Diem's a good example of when this pronunciation issue might come up. In a thousand History Channel and other documentaries, it's been pronounced Diem, like it appears to be on the page. So if and when conflicts like that one come up, I'll point them out, and hopefully we'll all be on the same correctly pronounced page. To start this one off, let's get everybody situated. Imagine Asia, if you can. It's mostly China, maybe entirely China in your mind's eye. Now imagine, or remember, the two appendages that hang off the south of Asia, jutting into the Indian Ocean and defining the Arabian Sea, the Bay of Bengal, and the South China Sea. India makes up the first of these growths, and covers about half the size of the continental United States. The second peninsula, if we cross over Bangladesh to get to it, is known generally as Southeast Asia, and it's roughly the same size as India. From left to right, it's made up of Myanmar, formerly British Burma, Thailand, formerly Siam, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, the last three of which collectively made up French Indochina. Thailand was the only nation on the peninsula never to have been colonized by Europe, although it was, sort of, in fiction, if you've ever seen the King and I. Down below the peninsula hang Malaysia, never exactly colonized but definitely dominated by the British, and Indonesia, which had been the East Indies under the Dutch. It was, from Afghanistan on the western border to China on the east and northern borders, a thoroughly colonized part of the world, and one which spent most of the 20th century throwing off its colonizers' chains. If you travel just a little bit further east, you'll hit the Philippines, colonized centuries ago by the Spanish, won from Madrid by Washington in the Spanish-American War, and the site of our dress rehearsal for Vietnam. We found that the Filipinos weren't so grateful for their liberation by us from Spain when we informed them that they weren't quite ready for independence yet, and that we'd be holding on to their country for some indefinite period first. If you go hunting for the earliest account of American GIs massacring Asians, collecting strings of ears, and talking about how the only good gook is a dead gook, the Philippines and not Vietnam are your destination. The word gook itself, and apologies, but there's going to be rough, ugly language from this episode through to the last one, isn't Vietnamese, but a derivative of Tagalog from the Philippines. At least, that's the best theory going. If you look it up, there are plausible origins in a dozen American wars, from Nicaragua to Costa Rica to the occupation of Japan to Korea. The Marines stepped onto many different shores and ended the lives of many different peoples, and they were always in need of something to call them. In any case, Vietnam occupies the far rightward edge of the Southeast Asian Peninsula. Mountain ranges divide the landmass from north to south, and Vietnam's western or leftward border follows those ranges from China down to the sea. In the middle of the country, Vietnam is just a narrow strip between the foothills and the ocean, but in the north and south, it flares out to accommodate the Red and Mekong River deltas. In the north, what would eventually become known as Tonkin from the western or leftward border, most of the land is covered by mountains and highlands, with fertile paddy bottoms crowding towards the coast. The middle section, later known as Annam or Annam, is all Piedmont, while the south, known for a while as Cochin China, has some highlands that mirror the north, but is dominated by the Mekong Delta and holds most of the best rice growing land in what we now know as Vietnam. I've got a couple of really interesting, very old maps that I've printed out and put up on my wall, and I'm going to have those in the show notes for this show and probably for every single show that we do on Vietnam. So these geography paragraphs are always pretty tough, but you can check out the show notes and the maps will be right there for you. Our best guess as to the path of human migration at the dawn of the human species comes up out of Africa tens of thousands or even a hundred thousand years ago. And it snakes along the coast through India. There's evidence of human habitation in the Southeast Asian Peninsula that's more than 40,000 years old, and it's more than reasonable to think that people were figuring out how to live in the southern and northern Vietnamese highlands and plains long before even the Chinese found China. It looks as though the Red River Delta in the north, Tonkin, might well have been one of the first places that humans settled down to farm, along with the Fertile Crescent and India. What's more, Like the Nile in Egypt, the Red River's annual, sometimes disastrous flooding probably helped a centralized government to form, in order to deal with the collective problems of irrigation and inundation. Vietnamese history, blending strongly with legend, has the Hung Kings first uniting the highland peoples and descending onto the delta almost 5,000 years ago, with those same Hung Kings staying on top for nearly 3,000 years which is why this is probably more legend than history, until the year 221 BC. At some point in the year 221 BC, and I'm sure somebody's got a more exact date than at some point, but Sam's folks, my girlfriend's folks, had a litter of pigs that they're selling as pets, and we got one to house train these two weeks, so I'm running on like an hour of sleep and an entire day dealing with one demanding infant named Case. So we're going with, at some point in the year 221 BC, the great Chinese Emperor Xi Huangdi, founder of the Qin Dynasty and the first guy to rule a unified China, sent a general down into the Vietnamese northern highlands, the region that would become known as Tonkin, and that guy annexed the territory for China. This, by the way, comes from a book called A Village in Vietnam, written by an American anthropologist named Gerald Hickey. Hickey was a member of the army of academics and social scientists that the U.S. sent into Vietnam during the war to try to get a handle on the country. The book is, to Hickey, a serious anthropological work, and to Paul Meuse, the French anthropologist and native of colonial Indochina who wrote the introduction. But the book was at the same time a kind of weapon of war, a manual that was supposed to help the U.S. government figure out why the village was important and how it could use an understanding of the village social structure to better corral the countryside as against the Viet Cong, nay Viet Minh. Hickey was sent, as one last aside, as part of the Michigan State University Vietnamese Advisory Group, which sponsored a great portion of American academic work in Vietnam. Anyway, the great emperor Qin Shi Huangdi annexes the northern third of modern Vietnam for China around 221 BC. After Shi Huangdi's death, the emperor he built imploded, and a number of his great generals set themselves up as independent kings and warlords in the chaos that followed. One of those, named Cao Tuo, or Triu Da, or perhaps both but in different languages, made himself king of a good chunk of South China, including Tonkin, now Vietnam, and called his new little fife Nam Viet. About a hundred years later, give or take, one of the many, many unifying crusades of the Han dynasty swept into Nam Viet to recover the territory for the emperor. They took not just the Tonkin Highlands and the Red River Delta, but moved down to the lowlands as far as what would become the capital at Hue, annexing, this time, the area that would later become known as Annam. Different Chinese dynasties and emperors would hold on to those two-thirds of modern Vietnam for about the next thousand years, until 938 AD or so. Many or most of Vietnam's traditional heroes come from this period, along with the country's cultural conception of heroism as resistance to foreign domination. There were, for example, the Trung sisters who led the people in revolt, retaking Annam and Tonkin, as well as parts of southern China, before being brutally repressed. They're still venerated in Vietnam today. A millennium of failed revolts, or temporarily, even for half a century temporarily, successful revolts finally culminated in the rebellion of Ngo Kuyen, who declared himself king and beat off the southern Han's attempts to retake his territory in 938. From here on until the coming of the French to Vietnam, the Vietnamese governed themselves under several different names and under almost constant attack from the Chinese, who would try to re the country once an emperor or so. At this point, the Mekong Delta, which makes up the lower third of modern Vietnam, was occupied almost entirely by the Kingdom of Champa, made up of an ethnic group you've never heard of and which has by now largely assimilated into the Vietnamese population. The other little bit of the Mekong lowlands was controlled by the Khmer Empire of Cambodia. There's some infighting and a lot of dynastic turnover. In the 800 years between when the Vietnamese won their independence from China and the arrival of the French, virtually none of which you need to know, and we're not going to cover almost any of it. What is important is that because of a long series of civil wars ending towards the end of the 17th century, Vietnam found itself subdivided. Similar to what happened in Japan during the rule of the Shogun, while the Lay Dynasty, the current set of emperors, technically provided the imperial sovereign, two powerful families actually held control in Vietnam, with the Trinh lords of north controlling all of Tonkin about half of Annam, and the imperial court, which at that point was in Hanoi. The Nguyen lords controlled the south, ruling from what would later become the imperial city of Hue. Both sides pledged loyalty to the emperor, and both sides fought each other bitterly for full control. I'm going to get into a fairly lengthy discussion here of Vietnamese culture and of the Chinese influence therein. It wasn't my natural inclination to explore Confucianism and its influence on the Vietnamese peasant mindset, because it seemed like everything that the Vietnamese peasantry did or did not get up to during the French period and during the American War could be explained through a little imaginative role-playing and a lot of common sense. But then I read Francis Fitzgerald's book, Fire in the Lake, which is convinced, along with Paul Mews, that French anthropologist, that the peasant mindset in the 1960s was much more reflective of the 4th century than the 20th, and I found their arguments pretty compelling. Likewise, the Americans got into a whole lot of trouble in Vietnam by thinking that they could figure the peasantry out with a lot of common sense. So I'm going to give you both barrels, drawing largely on Fitzgerald and where I can from Paul Mews. The Chinese managed to colonize every country lying near their borders for at least a little while, and they were in Vietnam for more than a moment. And like all great empires, the Chinese tried to ease the burden of domination by converting the natives of colonized territory. Not to convert them to any given religion, at least not necessarily, but to convert them into Chinese people. To the conquest, the Vietnamese, along with most of the other cultures in East Asia, owe their ideographic scripts, and at the outset, their ability to write at all. The Chinese replaced whatever system of monarchical rule there had been in Vietnam with Chinese Empire, administered by Mandarins. After the Tonkinese Viets won their independence, they maintained that same system of government, placing the Mandate of Heaven onto their own emperor, rather than one far away to the north. Now, inasmuch as the running of any real empire requires real politique and a bureaucracy focused on the actual day-to-day of imperial maintenance, the philosophical idea underpinning the Chinese concept of the Mandate of Heaven was that the emperor, with his court, was in some way mirroring the celestial imperial court in the heavens above. After the 5th century BC, the Chinese had decided that the best way to go about doing that mirroring, so as to create the most harmony and thus the best government, was to follow the teachings of Confucius. That's simplified if you know Chinese history real well, but it's what arrived in Vietnam, so for our purposes it's good enough. Moreover, unlike the aristocracies that made up the real guts of monarchy in Europe, Chinese imperial government wasn't feudal in the way that we'd understand it. The great mass of peasants toiled in subjection, sure, but not, when the system was working right, in the service of hereditary lords. The Chinese emperors, rather than creating a class of hereditary aristocrats, which would inevitably challenge their rule, relied upon professional bureaucrats known as mandarins, you became a Mandarin, not by virtue of your birth, but by studying for the standardized civil service exams, which were themselves almost entirely based on Confucian texts, and passing them. Obviously, kids of Mandarins had a leg up on passing those tests, but the Mandarin, its power, came purely through appointment by the emperor, not by hereditary means. This, likewise, is the system that arrived to Vietnam, and which stuck. Ngo Dinh Diem, the president of South Vietnam in the 1950s, was a Mandarin's son. Ho Chi Minh, a Mandarin's son. As Frances Fitzgerald says in her book, Like the Celestial Empire of China, the Vietnamese Empire was in one aspect a ritual state, whose function was to preside over the sacred order of nature and society. At its apex, the emperor stood as its supreme magician god endowed with the responsibility to maintain the harmonious balance of the yin and the yang, the two related forces of the universe. His success in this enterprise, like that of the villagers in the rites of ancestor worship, depended on the precision with which he followed the elaborate set of rituals governing his relations with the celestial authorities and the people of the empire. Confucianism, the very foundation of the state, was not merely a quote-unquote traditional religion, as Judaism and Christianity are the traditional religions of the West. Originating in a society of ancestor worshipers, it was, like ancestor worship itself, a sacralization of the past. Unlike the great Semitic prophets, Confucius did not base his teachings on a single contemporary revelation. Quoting him now within the quote here, "'I, for my part, am not one of those who have innate knowledge,' he said." I am simply one who loves the past and is diligent in investigating it. According to tradition, Confucius came to his wisdom through research into the great periods of Chinese civilization, the Cho Empire and its predecessors in the distant past. Tradition presents the master not as a revolutionary, but as a true reactionary, that is, a true conservative. Arriving at certain rules and precepts for the proper conduct of life, he did not pretend to have comprehended all wisdom, but merely to have set up guideposts pointing towards the Tao, or true way of life. For him, the Tao was the enlightened process of induction that led endlessly backwards into the past of civilization. The Tao may have been for him a secular concern, a matter of enlightened self-interest. The master never spoke of the spirits, reported his disciples. But for later Confucians, it had a sacred weight reinforced by magic and the supernatural, unquote. And all of that strikes me as real interesting. I've been reading Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy as of late, and he's refreshing because he takes a brutally modern scalpel to the time-honored thinkers of the past. And just so you know for whoever doesn't, Russell isn't a pop philosophy writer. He was an Oxford Don who more or less ran the philosophy department from the turn of the century through the Second World War. Anyway, Russell describes nearly everyone between Aristotle and Descartes as a dead end, playing around in the unfruitful and dumbest parts of both Plato and Aristotle, up to and including Augustine and Aquinas. The reason being that, he says, is that after the Greeks, the Western world tried to learn everything through deduction that is, reasoning by logical steps from unproved and unprovable axioms. Some of the older Greeks actually went out and studied the world, but for a thousand years and more after Aristotle, nobody did. The Chinese and the folks that they influenced went the other way entirely. Rather than deduction or a mix of deduction and induction, they went the other, more obvious route, which was pure induction, imagining that all the answers and virtue lie behind us rather than in front. Especially at a time in human history, when human history was barely distinguishable from legends and myths about past golden ages, it seems natural to imagine that the secrets of morality and good government lie with the heroes of the past. The Greeks avoided going this way in large part because the gods of their myths were so obviously immoral. The monotheism that influenced Christianity was much more Greek than it was Jewish, And it was the outgrowth of philosophers like Plato trying to figure out how God could still be good when all the accounts they had of gods, plural, were so uniformly bad.
1: This evening, I came here to speak to you about Vietnam. I do not have to tell you that our people are profoundly concerned about that struggle. There are passionate convictions about the wisest course for our nation to follow. There are many sincere and patriotic Americans who harbor doubts about sustaining the commitment that three presidents and a half a million of our young men have made. Doubt and debate are enlarged because the problems of Vietnam are quite complex. They are a mixture of political turmoil, of poverty, of religious and factional strife, of ancient servitude, and modern longing for freedom.
0: Again from Fitzgerald now, quote, Traditional Vietnamese education accorded with its medium. son did not learn, quote-unquote, principles from his parents. He learned how to imitate his father in his every action. Confucius said, quote, When your father is alive, discover his project, and when he is dead, remember his actions. If in three years you have not left the road followed by your father, you are really a son full of filial piety, Each precept, independently arrived at by a process of induction, the Confucian researches into the past, had its own absolute importance for the proper conduct of life. Phrased, perhaps, as a moral absolute, the precept still depended for authority on the success it was thought to have conferred in the past. Confucian logic was, in a sense, pure pragmatism, applied over a vast distance in time. In reading the Confucian concepts, the child arrived not at a theory of behavior, but at a series of clues to the one true way of life, or Tao, The sum total of all this Confucianism, according to Fitzgerald, is a particular outlook, from the lowest peasant through to the emperor himself, one which would stay to some degree intact through at least to the end of the American War. And that outlook was one of unanimity, Confucianism describes a Tao, a right path that leads to societal harmony, a harmony that necessarily connects emperor with peasant. In Chinese, for example, there's no word for brother, only little brother or older brother, because those relationships were for so long wrapped up in Confucian teaching that they ceased to be equivalent the way that they are in English. Little brother and older brother are two distinct relationships. Brother isn't really anything at all. Which all means that the Vietnamese peasant, from ancient times up through the 1960s, wasn't really looking for an interest group to improve his lot, because the idea of competing, perhaps equally valid sets of ideas, didn't square with this Confucian worldview. The peasant was looking for, in Fitzgerald's words, a single uniform way of life. To illustrate a little bit, while peasants necessarily made up the bulk of the armies that fought over Vietnam, the peasantry itself wasn't given to supporting one side or the other. And I'm talking now about independent Vietnam, but before the coming of the French. The peasantry itself wasn't given to supporting one side or the other, and was pretty happy the day after the new emperor had established himself to give that guy full loyalty. Why? Ungratefulness? The kind of oriental mysteriousness and trickery that characterized later American thinking about the peasantry? No, the mandate of heaven fell upon harmony. The emperor embodied that harmony, but the harmony itself was important. So the day one emperor fell and the next sat on the throne, harmony had been restored. It was embodied in a new person, but it was, in an important way, the same harmony. What the peasant feared wasn't a change of regime, but a difficult change of regime, an ongoing period of disastrous disorder. And it was the potential for ongoing disorder, rather than an orderly change, says Fitzgerald, that would tend to push peasants one way or the other. The situation as we left it, with Vietnam subdivided in the 17th century, a war on between the two sides and all the normal side effects of war, corruption, devastation, and famine in play, that was exactly the kind of situation that could get the peasants fired up. At this point, let me remind everybody that I am not an expert in any of this. If I've got Vietnamese listeners or well-intentioned modern-day Orientalists in the audience, please, please correct or add to what I'm saying here. Just like when I was ham-handedly explaining Shia Islam during the Iran shows, take all of this with a grain of salt. Not because it's ill-intentioned, but because I'm a history guy, not a Chinese philosophy guy. And what this Confucianism did, at least until the coming of the French, and probably afterwards, was to make Vietnamese thought radically conservative, Not in the sense we have of conservatism in the U.S. right now, but in the sense of backwards-looking. Because unlike in the West, more education away from the family didn't mean more liberal or less constrained thought, the way it tends to in the U.S. when we send our children off to college. But it actually meant entering more deeply into the Confucian constructs and ideals that govern life in the country. Again, from Francis Fitzgerald now, quote, The traditional Vietnamese child grew up into a monolithic world composed of the family and its extensions in the state. For him, there was no alternative to the authority of the father, and no question of specialized knowledge. The education of a Mandarin was greater, but hardly more diverse than that of the rice farmer, for the Confucian tradition provided a personal philosophy, a religion, a technology, and a method of managing the state. For the Mandarin, there was no such thing as pure science or knowledge for its own sake. There was, somewhere, a single correct answer to every question. The Mandarin therefore studied in order to learn how to act." Now, again, I don't know if you can take all of this for absolute granted, especially after the French colonization and the entrance of communism in the North, and I wish that I had better sources from less white people, but as intellectual bedrock opposed to the Enlightenment, yeah, all this seems a little bit crucial to me. Continuing from Fitzgerald, quote, In the traditional Vietnamese family, a family whose customs survived even into the 20th century, the father held absolute authority over his wife and children. The Vietnamese woman, by custom, wielded a great deal more power than her Chinese sister, but the traditional Chinese-based law specified that the patriarch governed his wife and children as he governed his rice fields. In theory, though not by customary practice, he could dispose of them as he wished, and they had no recourse against him. The emperor held a similar power over the great family of the empire. By law, the trustee of all of the rice lands, he held them for the villages on condition of their productivity and good behavior. Without a priesthood or independent feudal aristocracy to obstruct the unified field of his power, he exercised authority through a bureaucracy of mandarins totally dependent upon him. Though Vietnam was often divided between warlord families, the disputes were never resolved by a sharing of power, by treaties such as the Dukes of Burgundy made with the kings of France, but always by the restoration of an absolute monarch. To divide the country would have been to assert that the entire moral and social fabric of the community had dissolved, as a family can only have one father, so the nation could only have one emperor to preside over its one Tao or way of life." All of this gets to be more relevant later on, I promise. Because the way that Fitzgerald couches it all, and I believe her, is in terms of the village. Unlike the European peasantry, which, while it lived in its own villages, was always under the direct heavy hand of some immediate lord, the Vietnamese village was a strong unit over and against any outside power. The reason the village, even as it governed by council its own rice fields, and resided, quote, hidden from sight behind high hedges of bamboo, unquote, didn't represent a power structure in opposition to the imperial court, was that it too was part of this grand Confucian tapestry. Peasants participated in their allegiance to the overall harmony through their allegiance to the village. Now, that harmony could break down, which we'll get to in a second here. But for the most part, it's what maintained these strong, independent villages as part of one whole. As Fitzgerald explains, and this just as an example, this thinking played a serious role in peasant thinking about communism and wealth. Quote, Within the villages as within the nation, the amount of arable land was absolutely inelastic. The population of the village remained stable. And so to accumulate wealth meant to deprive the rest of the community of land, to fatten while one's neighbor starved. Vietnam is no longer a closed economic system, but the idea remains with the Vietnamese that great wealth is antisocial, not a sign of success, but a sign of selfishness, unquote. Now, like I said, there's going to be an example in this show about how this village structure played into larger Vietnamese national politics, but... That's an example of how in future shows, this is going to play into their response to the French and the Americans. All right.
1: So you were interested primarily, primarily in the, let us say, the history of Vietnam and the politics of Vietnam.
2: Well, finally, and as a consequence of this, because I began to see that it was not just myself that really didn't understand the Vietnamese politics, but it was the mission officials, it was other reporters there. And I began to see, again, we were, we were um, launched on this enormous war without knowing very much about the country we were in.
1: Did you have the impression, perhaps, that the American military, the American intelligence, had not done its homework, had not read its history?
2: Well, they certainly hadn't learned the lessons of the French War. On the other hand, it really wasn't because they were stupid or badly prepared or that kind of thing. It was that they didn't want to learn those lessons. If they had, they would have just had to withdraw.
0: Okay. So the last thing to cover before diving back into the current of actual history is a word on Vietnamese religion. It wouldn't be inherently obvious to anyone who hasn't specifically studied it, but the Indochinese peninsula has been a kind of battleground, a cultural battleground, between China and India. In the same way that the Greeks and Phoenicians colonized the western Mediterranean as far as Spain almost before recorded history, Indian princes and religions have colonized the peninsula since time immemorial. When you see those temples at Angkor Wat in Cambodia that look so Indian, it's because in a sense they are. First Hinduism and then Buddhism made their way east over the water as far as Vietnam. Once Buddhism had made its separate way to China through the Himalayas and the Silk Road, the Chinese version, along with Confucianism and Taoism, also descended into Vietnam. Whereas India tended to win out from Cambodia and Laos on westward, China tended to predominate in Vietnam, understandably given the long Chinese domination. But what seems to be clear is that the only predominant belief among the whole of the Viet population was animism or ancestor worship. Confucianism and the Dao were bound up in the state, so they were fundamental, and Buddhism was widespread, but not as a unifying force. Nothing like a church as we first understood the church and then churches in Europe. Moreover, the Chinese imported style of imperial rule was bound up with the ancestor worship that predominated in the villages. A village existed by virtue of a charter from the emperor, a charter that likewise authorized the protection of a kind of ancestor spirit. The charter and the spirit both were housed in a kind of village temple or a gathering place called the din. I took a class in Spain called Mentality in the Middle Ages. Mentality, or mentalité, is a technical term from a relatively new school of French history, and it means a kind of background information of the mind, the thing that Caesar's mind shared with the lowliest of his subjects, what Napoleon had in common with the least of his private soldiers. Religion in Mediterranean Europe hasn't, I don't think, ever quite reached the level of mentalité. It's always been too elaborate, too philosophical. If it bears thinking about, it's really too conscious to be mentalité. And even in what we consider Europe's most fervently religious period, between the fall of Rome and the beginning of the Renaissance, pretty much all intellectual activity was focused on theology, or further disputing and working out religion. In Vietnam, though, mentalité seems to be exactly what religion was, and Fitzgerald points out that that would make intuitive sense. Vietnamese peasant life was structured around an, ideally, unending harmony. Planting rice and harvesting rice, rainy season, then dry. First the father and then the son. First one emperor and then the next. And because Confucianism was so well integrated into their mentalité, because it set them looking backwards rather than forwards, to the actions of their forebears that they'd seek to repeat, It makes sense that ancestor worship would both be the norm and be so obvious that it could be a religion without any need for a central structure or church. One generation farmed the village paddies. When it tired, it was buried in those same paddies to nurture, physically and spiritually, the ones after. Quote, the people flowed over the land like water, maintaining and fructifying it for the generations to come, unquote. Again from Fitzgerald. All of which might seem like pretty serious esoterica in the context of this show, but the thing of it is that while in isolation, a religion of mentalité is so strong as to obviate anything rising up to change it. If a more active, organized force arrives from the outside, that force will find a religion of mentalité to be very fertile ground for missionaries.
2: I think it's probably a good thing
0: that this meeting comes at the end of a week of
2: terror in South Vietnam, I know I was much shocked by it. I'm sure you were. It's hard to know what one can say about the events of the past week. My own reaction is one of horror at the terrible slaughter, of awe at the amazing heroism of those who are officially designated as our enemies, of guilt, of guilt that we still permit this horror to continue. Even now, even after this week, no one doubts that in some hideous sense of the word the United States can still obtain a victory, can still win in Vietnam. But if the men in Washington are still at all rational, they must realize that this can only be a victory of the graveyard.
0: Speaking of missionaries, the French made it to Vietnam in force only by the mid-1800s. Pretty late compared to the Spanish or British in the Americas, the British in India, and pretty late all around, colonially speaking. But long before French soldiers ever set foot on the soil of what we now call Vietnam, French Catholic priests had been evangelizing. One maybe strange element of the Catholic reaction to Martin Luther, what we call the Counter-Reformation, was a massive missionary effort directed not at the Protestant countries in Europe, but towards the Far East, from India to Japan. New orders, especially the Jesuits, spearheaded that effort, making it huge and hugely successful, helped on by the Spanish and Portuguese in their proto-colonial expeditions and outposts. After Marco Polo, pretty much all of the Europeans visiting eastern courts were priests, and almost all of those priests were Jesuits. The French, for whatever reason, sent their priests to Vietnam, possibly because the Portuguese, Spanish, and English had already laid claim to most of the rest of the territory around the Indian Ocean. Portuguese traders first made it to Vietnamese ports in 1516, and French priests were not far behind. The Jesuits, the priests of the Society of Jesus, are just about the smartest folks who have ever taken holy orders, and back during the active period of the Counter-Reformation, they were easily some of the sharpest people in all of Europe, which explains to some extent why they were so successful overseas, that and their commitment to far-flung missions. Two examples. One of the seven men that originally founded the Order of the Jesuits in the mid-1500s in the basement of a church in Paris ended his life in India. Two, an Italian Jesuit named Matteo Ricci was one of the first two Europeans, both Jesuits, to master spoken and written classical Chinese. Before setting out on a one-way ticket to China in the late 1500s, Ricci, like all missionary Jesuits, understood that he would in all likelihood never have access to a library again. So he used memory techniques adopted by and created by the Jesuits like the famous memory palace to literally commit entire libraries to memory. Once he made it to China, he used those same memory techniques to ingratiate himself with the Mandarin class. They all desperately wanted to get their kids past the largely memory based Confucian civil service exams. And he was a man who not only had the whole Vatican archives in his head, but who'd memorized thousands upon thousands of classical Chinese characters in just a couple of years. All of which is to say that, compared to the strongly Shinto priests in Japan and the ardent masses of Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims in India, the religion of mentalité in Vietnam didn't put up much resistance to the Jesuits. A priest named Alexander de Rhodes created the Romanized alphabet for Vietnamese, known as Quoc Nhu, in 1651, and he put it down in the Dictionarium Animiticum Lusitanum et Latinum, or the Vietnamese-Portuguese-Latin dictionary, immediately making it vastly easier for priests, European priests, to proselytize without having to learn the ideogrammic script of Vietnamese. By the year 1700, we've got estimates that as much as 10% of the Vietnamese population had converted to Catholicism. That sounds like peanuts compared, for example, to Spanish America, but it was a huge number, especially when you consider that Catholic inroads virtually everywhere else were made with the help of a great deal of violence. And that was not how it happened in Vietnam. By about this same time, though, around 1700, the Vietnamese emperors themselves were starting to get a little tetchy about this growing Catholic population. It seems as though that as long as you were down with the Dao and the way that it ordered the state, the authorities were pretty ecumenical. Indian or Chinese Buddhism, Hindu traders, whatever. But Catholicism crossed the uncrossable line, which was to deny ancestor worship. Interestingly enough, Matteo Ricci, when he went to China, synthesized Catholicism with Confucianism, and he managed to blend it with traditional Chinese ancestor worship without upsetting the traditional authorities. Later Catholic priests that followed him thought that what he had done was heretical, and they managed to get his teachings banned. Anyway, like I said, while other religious movements in Vietnam didn't really have churches as such, Catholic missionaries formed missions that is, closed communities, with their own territorial and political bases, however small they may have been. That didn't sit well with the imperial court, or the ruling lords who were sometimes in control in the country, and starting in the 18th century, we see a series of sporadic but recurring repressions of the Catholic population, up to and including widespread violence against priests and practitioners. The French, hungry for more Asian territory, given their paltry possessions in Africa and the New World, we're beginning to take the repressions of those priests and their Vietnamese spiritual brethren increasingly seriously. So finally returning to Vietnamese history in earnest, when we left off Vietnam was broken up between the Trinh lords in the north in Tonkin and part of Anam and the Nguyen lords in the south part of Anam and what would become Cochin China. The lay emperors, the actual emperors, were pretty much powerless and war between the two powerful sets of lords, the Trinh and the Nguyen, was ongoing. That conflict lasted nearly 50 years, and occupied most of the 1600s. By 1673, the Trin and the Nguyen had more or less settled their conflict with each other, without one having beaten the other, and decided to rule their separate parts of what had been a united kingdom peaceably. The thing that probably kept this arrangement from being totally unsupportable, both in terms of the peasantry and in terms of the Confucian notion of this state, was that the lay emperors were still there, even if they had no actual control. The Trinh were happy to rule their part of the country peacefully, but the Nguyen, however, though they were fine leaving the Trinh alone, looked westward and southward to continue expanding their territory. They faced, across the Indochinese peninsula, or the Southeast Asian peninsula, the ever weaker kingdom of Champa to the south, the variably formidable Laotians to the northwest, the diminished Khmer emperors of Cambodia also to the west, and beyond with their own interests in the lowlands that connected to the Mekong Delta were Burma, currently Myanmar, and Thailand, at that point Siam, both strong polities. The Nguyen lords made war on all of them, and one of those wars with Siam, this time over the remnants of the Khmer's Cambodia, began to go badly for them. Their military defeats, coupled with corruption in their Mandarin class and heavy taxes levied on the peasantry to fund the fighting, finally led the peasants of the village of Son to revolt. Three brothers from that village razed the countryside, uniting the Vietnamese peasantry with otherwise raced highlanders like the Montagnards and began to quickly make military gains against the Nguyen lords. The Nguyen made peace with the Siamese as quick as they could, but the Trinh lords smelled blood in the water and ended their hundred-year truce by invading from the north. The game was over, and the Son brothers first pushed the surviving Nguyen lords to Jiadin, now Saigon, then, in the year of the American Revolution, 1776, the Taesan rebels took Saigon and massacred everyone in the Nguyen family, except for one nephew, Nguyen An, who escaped to Siam. It was at this point that the French and the Catholics found what might have been an opening towards consolidating their position in Vietnam. A French priest named Pignot de Bahane met Nguyen An during his escape and became an advisor to the young Saigon. Between 1776 and 1785, Nguyen-An recaptured and lost Saigon several times, once or twice securing sizable territory before being forced to escape back to Thailand or Siam. The Son, having by that point decided that they were pretty firmly in control in the south, and having trounced a Siamese invasion on the side, set their sights north on the Trin lords in 1786. The Son finished them off in two months. The lay emperor fled to China and appealed to his imperial brother, the Qianlong Emperor, for aid. That emperor sent what the sources say were 200,000 men or an incredibly large number of troops to the lay emperor's aid, a massive army that the Son destroyed entirely by a series of lightning-fast maneuvers through the highlands that the Viet Minh would later use against the French and the Americans. Understandably, Nguyen An, cooling his heels in Siam, thought this was all pretty garbage for him. And he asked Pignot to Behain, the French priest, to go to his emperor for aid. Pignot thought that if his picked man could win control of the whole country and do it with French Catholic help, that he would have secured a place for Catholics, and for French Catholicism in particular, in Vietnam, so Pignot set sail for France. He appealed to his king, Louis XVI, the same Louis who would later be guillotined in the revolution, and Louis signed the Little Treaty of Versailles, promising military aid to Vietnam in return for Catholic concessions in 1787. Unfortunately for Pignot, the implementation of the treaty was up to Thomas Conway, the governor-general of Pondicherry, the relatively small and relatively short-lived French colony in India. If Thomas Conway doesn't sound all that French of a name to you, it's because it's not. Conway was born in Ireland, emigrated to France, joined the Irish Brigade of the French Army, volunteered to serve in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, became a General of the American Revolution, returned to France, and eventually became Governor General of Pondicherry. Anyway, Thomas Conway was dead set against a colonial expedition for Vietnam for any reason, so Pignot was forced to raise funds and mercenaries in Paris, relying on public sympathy with the Catholic cause in Vietnam, finally arriving back to that country two years later. Meanwhile, Nguyen An had used the Tay Sun's move northward to capture Saigon yet again, and the priest and the prince met up in 1789, the year of the signing of the U.S. Constitution. With French training, some French armament, and a few French ships, though not many French troops, Nguyen An consolidated his control of southern Vietnam, Cochin, China, expanding it at the expense of the Khmers, Siam, and the Tay Sun rebels. In the early 1790s, the best of the three Tay Son brothers died, and Nguyen An used the opening to move north. Over the next decade, he overthrew the Tay Son and finally united the country again, holding a larger Vietnam than ever before, one that stretched from the Chinese border down to the Ca Mau Peninsula in the south. Pigno didn't live to see that final victory in 1802, having died of dysentery while helping to lead the defense of Quỳ Nhon in 1799. And while Nguyen An memorialized the priest as the, quote, most illustrious foreigner ever to appear at the court of Cochin, China, unquote, he held that because the French king had reneged on the little treaty of Versailles, he, as the new emperor of Vietnam, owed the French no particular concessions, either of territory, trade, or religion. Nguyen An set himself up in Hue and founded the Nguyen dynasty, giving himself the name Gia Long, which combined parts of the old names of both Saigon and Hanoi symbolizing the long-awaited unity of Vietnam. Long ruled one country, but not exactly one people. The northerners were the basis of Vietnamese society, well-integrated into the sort-of-Chinese, sort-of-Vietnamese system of villages in harmonious subordination to the emperor. The folks in Annam, around the imperial court at Hue, had likewise been assimilated into that system by the longtime rule of the Nguyen Lords, Remember, we're in the Nguyen dynasty now, Nguyen emperors, but before it was the Nguyen lords that were in kind of the same place. Anyway, but in the southern Mekong Delta, Cochin, China, around Saigon, the Vietnamese had only just arrived, only just begun establishing their villages, only just begun populating this plain that had previously been the home of several other different peoples. As Francis Fitzgerald says, In time, perhaps, the Mandarins descending from the imperial court might have pacified the Southerners and included them within the circle of empire but the French did not allow them the necessary period of generations. Only 40 years after the accession of Long, a small French naval force landed near Saigon. The French column marched straight through the oldest of the Southern provinces and severed them from the empire. And there we are, folks, the first full episode of our last full series, Vietnam. Next time, I think we'll make it all the way into the cold open, and the American role in proceedings will quickly become much clearer. Even though SFD might not be around forever, I'd still like it to be a success, to get it heard by as many people as it can before it goes down, and you all know that you're the biggest part of that job. You won't be hearing me say it much longer, so maybe take that as the impetus to finally act on what I ask, rate the show tell your friends about it post the links on social media it only takes a couple of minutes and it does worlds of good for me guys alongside that come find me on facebook or twitter i'd like to talk to you about what we're doing here nearly every one of you knows more about vietnam and the us's involvement there than you did about iran or guatemala so now is the time to weigh in i want to hear from you we have a long long way to go before we're done but we covered nearly 5,000 years in this episode, so maybe that bodes well. Next time, the near-simultaneous birth of French colonialism in Indochina and its eventual destroyer, Ho Chi Minh, the rise and fall of rebellion, the First World War, Versailles, the dear teams of the American OSS, and the brief, brief moment when it looked like Vietnam might well be and stay free. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy.